Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I am joined by professor and poet Rodney Jones, who has written 11 books of poetry, most recently Village Prodigies, which he'll be sharing some work from today. He has received many honors in his career, including the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Harper Lee Award, and has been a finalist for both the Griffin International Poetry Prize and the Pulitzer Prize. Rodney, it's a pleasure to see you today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Dave. Well, thank you for being here. How's your day going? Good, good. Nothing terrible has happened. I've been looking for termites. I've been reading about the swarms. Oh, which are which are a beautiful thing that you can expect in May here, as we all love. Um, I, I I am as well. I've got the uh, the curtains drawn most of the night at this point. So, well, anyway, to kind of talk and get us going, um, I was wondering where the original idea for this this new book, Village Prodigies, came from, and kind of how that idea evolved into the final product here. It was a very slow process. I uh, wrote a poem about a, a kid's club in 2006, this club formed by fourth graders who were bright kids and, and, and sort of patriotic, and they were reading a, a J. Edgar Hoover book. Mm. And they got this idea to form this club to investigate mysteries in the fourth grade classroom, and they were thinking they were tied into the Cold War. So they all were referring to each other's last na- by last names. And a terrible thing happened in, in the club uh, in that some really mean kids took over. They were being sort of lied to, and it, it, it sort of related to the Bush administration, I thought, at the time, but later I thought the current administration works too. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, other poems started evolving um, it, it was a book that took kind of an evolutionary form. I realized that these six people had a history and they were all outliers. And so I took them from 1950 to 2015 in the book, uh, showing to some degree the relationship between the boys and then also, and, and men, and also some of the other characters from the, the, the town and, uh, and the town itself, uh, they all traveled and went beyond their beginnings. Uh, at the same time, uh, some of the issues remained. So it was a cartoon yeah, in many ways. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> well, before we go further, I'd love if you could read a, a little selection from the beginning of the book there. This section of the book has to do with... Uh, Alzheimer's and one family's uh, relation to Alzheimer's. Um, the son in this uh, part of the book, Seth Portis, is probably the dominant character in the book. Uh, his mother is Reba Portis, and this is re- from Requiem for Reba Portis. I'll read three pieces. It is how we see time that composes us and marks us as the most intelligent species. On any one day with any given person, intelligence varies. On only one afternoon might Keats pen ode to a nightingale. On only one night could Monk unblock the grand piano and deliver the chords around midnight. When Reba says, something is wrong with the present or me, it plays a chord. That Reba expresses some awareness of her dementia plays into Brooks' hope that the good days when Mother summons the spirit to go out to the flower bed and untangle crabgrass from the zinnias, may proliferate. 
Good days are optimized by desire. Bad days are inward days. Brooke must bring out Reba. She prays. She reads books, studies articles, and time designs a game. Name that ancestor. Cold Springs rules. Daughter deals to mother from shoebox album. Two decks like gin, rummy, or canasta. The portises, backcountry genteel, duded and frock for picnics. The Dunlops, parvenus, and overalls and floral seed bag dresses. Hope is familiar at this stage of the disease. Mother identifies among the portises two sets of double first cousins, the Hungarian aunt most take for creek. Win after win, rose, peach, and axamander. In the Dunlop five-generation photo, she names each face with a presbyopic focus of hill people, which may count as miracle or symptom. Seventy years ago is closer than the past ten minutes. The strong stuff when the lid is taken off. Who are you? Or, that old man is not my husband. Aphasia's grapes target thought it she could not put her finger on. Not Reba, friend said, bless her heart. And the children dismayed as strange, for now she would sell up and now cuss a blue streak who had always been so staid in polite company, so quaffed, white to love in Sunday school proper. Of parrots, children know which is meaner, which brighter, who more likely to forget. But one day, foraging among the freezer's bearded cutlets, the daughter found a hidden bra and said the word. Father delayed. Son thought, no. He still had hope when a neighbor asked, what kind of woman would I be? And she answered, ugly. But her question shrank to platitudes. Blue doubts circled her. When she began to ask, the doctor said, if you know enough to ask, you don't have it. The last section of, of this particular poem is called Redundancy Loops. And um, Chuck Berry, one of my favorite musicians, died earlier this year and and I thought of him doubly in terms of, of this thing. Chuck Berry's music was the first music I heard that lived with me when I was not with the music. Mm -hmm. If I was operating farm machinery, I would be hearing Maybelline or Johnny B. Good and just going wild. This is called Redundancy Loops. Something bowed up in her she would not take back. Things flew all over her or rubbed her the wrong way. One day when the sun was too cavalierly mowing the lawn, the world-canceling noise of the moor had accommodated an inner hall where he was channeling Chuck Berry, shaking like a dog climbing out of a pond as he hopped on one leg and jigged the moor or guitar ahead of him in the glorious rift that made the trees by the cemetery take off their shirts. She saw him. She saw what he was not, came up from behind and grasped him firmly by the occiput. Before she spoke of his future, employing lubricants like elbow grease so he would not forget, he leapt up, 
He fired the other musicians. He caught the train. He boarded the plane and flew back to the United States. Why does anyone remember anything? She had on a whirl-around skirt and short set, and after she let him know just what kind of person he was, she flung off the skirt, grabbed the handle of the moor, and took off with the mind to show him. Then he saw she had forgotten the shorts. She was mowing in her panties. He did not know how to feel. He ran behind her with the skirt and tapped her on the shoulder, but she would not stop even when he shouted, Mother! And later she would ask to hear the story and laugh. She would not stop, and he saw she would go round and round. There would only be that moment until she had erased the pattern, and he stood back and thought of the seasons and thought the fear of the mother is the beginning of memory. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Um, one thing that I find looking at your poetry and your work overall um, and that people talk about is this idea of this focus on memory and place uh, and solidifying those two ideas together. And I was wondering if you could talk about that and why you tend to fixate on how those ideas work with one another. That's an, that's an interesting and complex thought. In, in this particular book, I just thought of the ineluctability of memory, but, but also of the presence of what has happened in the mind. So I created this device called the portal mm -hmm. in which characters are in one scene and thinking about another scene, which, yeah. is, which is the basis of, of, uh, of much of the connectivity of the book. The inner life seems to me to be memory, invention, hunger, fear, the basic kinds of engines of our imagination and, the, and the, the larger narrative we form. And it also, in this book, includes dementia in the first part of the book and in other parts of the book, uh, narcotics. Uh, and in, in the last section of the book, uh, a mental episode where a character has a, has a breakdown. Uh, a lot of it is unreliable. Mm -hmm. I often go around calling, you know, unreliable omniscience the male point of view. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm interested in narratology, and it, it obviously involves memory. But also, I love uh, dystopic future stuff. Yeah, maybe I'll try that. Maybe <laughs> next book, right? Next book. <laughs> it's selling right now, so that's not a bad deal. <laughs> well. I'm reading uh, Margaret Atwood's marvelous trilogy, Orcs and Crake. Yes. And it, 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 it reminds me of my original suspicions about apocalyptic episodes, what would likely do away with us, and she nails it there. It's our, it's our, our beautiful science that, that perhaps endangers us more than anything else. <laughs> no. I love science, but uh, it will work for anyone. Yes, it will. Um, even those that maybe should not have their hands on it. So, precisely. Yeah. Well, that that's an interesting answer. Uh, tell me more about how you uh, came upon this idea of the portal as like a literary device, and also a kind of interesting thought experiment for connecting these characters in the book. There's an image in the book. It's a haunting image. Uh, 
a friend of mine, uh, a poet, Deborah Diggs, um, was with me in in uh, Los Angeles, and Yusef Kamanyanka was there. We were together reading, and uh, she had experienced a great loss. Her husband, who's a veterinarian, he was her third husband, and she had adored him, and uh, he he died. And she was having trouble getting on her feet. And uh, during that that weekend, I spent a lot of time talking with her. We were both smokers. And at some point, she left me a lighter, and I started to give it back to her. And she said, no, keep it. And um, three weeks later, I discovered that she had committed suicide. And uh, ab- about the same time, we had a derecho where I was living in Carbondale, Illinois, which is a horrible wind, uh, sort of hurricane force, 120 miles per hour for 40 minutes. And it blew everything down and blew out power for a week. We were without power and made dump soup out of all the things in the freezer. <laughs> and then we're barbecuing, and I went out to barbecue to turn on the propane, and I reached in my pocket. And there was that lighter that that, uh, that Deborah had left me, and I thought, "Oh my God!" And that was that was the first image of the portal, mm-hmm. you know, just the 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 living presence of the past. Yeah. Uh, and then it took another form, in that one of the characters had this very strange vision of a of a of a foot with eyes in it that turned into a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't want it, the portal just to be a memory. I wanted it to be, you know, sort of a, of a token of the inner life. Yeah. And I wanted to make uh, the book fiction. Interesting. Which is your inner life. Yes, yes, yes. To um, me, mine to you. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I find that kind of fascinating. Uh, and it kind of plays into another question I have is is working within a narrative context. Uh, is that something throughout your work that you've been more comfortable in, or is it something in particular you wanted to do for this book? I was always accused of the narrative. Yes. And, and uh, I grew up in a storytelling culture, as some of us do. Yes. Not everyone. Um, the unreliability of those narratives is interesting to me also. I grew up in a very, you know, fundamentalist uh, religious area. Uh, I would say almost universally racist, not universally racist, but with with the white population that I was aware of. I heard disgusting things all the time. But still, time is always passing. Yeah. Uh, we are always in a place. And we have all these other places within us and these philosophical ideas, but I think that was always a part of the way I saw the world as a as being connected intimately to the passage of time. And uh, I've said in some places, I mean, in Principia Mathematica can be seen as a conversation in a narrative. Mm-hmm. Or we could see all narratives as examples in a, in a philosophical essay. And I suppose I see them both ways. I see, I see the human mind working both ways. But I think I favor the time the time model. Yeah. I think so. Many poets don't. (laughs) 
I, I, I see that. That is an interesting place, but you don't, this narrative opens itself up to a bunch of different formats and explorations, not in a, in a typical sense, I think. Um, you invent some forms within this to kind of explore these ideas and the passage of time in your characters and use things such as Facebook posts and letters. Um, what was your favorite type of form or invented form to write in? Or was there, there not even form, was there a favorite portion of this book that you really enjoyed writing or enjoyed working on? Well, I enjoyed almost all the, 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 the sections of the book, especially the righteous trip to some degree, which mm-hmm. is, you know, sort of a 1973 uh, hitchhiking trip that two characters, one who's flunked out of school and another has returned from Vietnam with one arm. They decide to go on this trip, and they're both bats. And uh, strange things happen, but it, it unrolled well. The last section of the book called Buenas Noches is about uh, Seth Portis being in Mexico working for an international poultry company. And he's to write a tract on Mexico's first totally integrated poultry processing plant. Huh. Mexico's first. And while he's there, he starts to get this idea of writing this video game called Buenas Noches. And when I started that narrative, I didn't realize that he was having a breakdown, that the uh, Buenas Noches was all in his mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that, in that section, I think I went further than any of the other sections. Uh, it's much of it just uh I, I would think very hard to follow yeah because uh they're about a person who's coming unglued in his thoughts so uh at the, at the same time i don't want to um ever lose some kind of transcendent condition of amusement which i consider socially necessary for all of us mm-hmm. in troubled times that was a lot of fun to write. Um, most of the sections were, to some degree, difficult. I enjoyed um, reversals of fortune, maybe because I was I was playing, in terms of time, leaping from 1959 to 2014 with the same characters. And my sense was to make the characters maybe a little older as kids and maybe a little younger as, as old people. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, that time playing yeah. situation. There's an enjoyment in that. Then there's something baser about that. You can see that in our enjoyment or our consumption of media, uh, our, our, our books with intervening characters that spread themselves there's this enjoyment in following people across this thing and being able to compare back and forth of what they were and where they are now. Well, I thought Charles Dickens, I read Dickens a lot in fourth grade. I don't know. Why. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I loved him and I, I would almost cry reading because he loved this situation where someone was bedraggled, maybe orphaned as a kid, and then later comes up above these other people who were above him earlier yeah. and, 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 you know, just these 
sort of shifts in fate, these seams or rifts that we seem to be able to accommodate in, in some fiction. Gatsby is that kind of book, I think. Yeah. Many of our favorite books are. And the universe works in a certain way, and it feels good that it works this way, uh, whether it be tragedy or triumphant in the Dickens case. Yeah. It's true. But Dickens always has a, a, a multi-layered emotional base where we see more than one emotion at one time. And uh, I actually think that's natural. I think our social habit is to uh, purify and, and, and simplify. Mm-hmm. But I think they're always there all the time. Everything. Uh, it's interesting what you get documented, though. You talk about the unreliability of narrators and how stories are told. Um, I always think it's interesting, especially you can see it in poetry, uh, even above fiction a lot of the times, that uh, those m- multiple emotions, those contradictory things that come into play that are, are there but are maybe not recorded after the fact uh, and why people do the things they do or think the things they do. Um, and I think that that's interesting to see in, in certain poetic works that are coming out. I would think in, in, in literature there is some secret that wishes to be revealed, you know, that, that literature should reveal the human condition in ways that aren't always apparent in ordinary social discourse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I'm interested in what made you want to write poetry uh, and what keeps you writing it? Well, to begin with, and I'm certain this is true, I did not like poetry. I, I thought it was very simple to do. I thought <laughs> you can just use less of the page. <laughs> and I didn't see, what what is this about the fog creeping in on little cat feet? I, so what? <laughs> you know, I didn't like poetry. And then I was dumped, you know. I was dumped by a girl, and I thought, for the first time of myself in a very pathetic way. No, I'd always thought of myself. With, I'd enjoyed self-pity. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought I would make these poems where I would create a uh, a condition of such misery that I would show them as a girl and she would uh, take me back, at which point I would refuse. That was, it was that simple or complex or however you call it. I wanted to impress girls. I wanted to get girlfriends. That's why I started writing poetry. Yeah. Why did you keep writing it? <laughs> you're, you're, you're suggesting that it didn't work. And, uh, <laughs> well, there's a, there's a great deal of truth to that. I, I think anybody who keeps writing poetry uh, is probably um, a person who becomes addicted to another kind of condition that involves solitude and and language. Mm-hmm. And maybe self hypnosis, <laughs> um, but it's the pleasure of the language and the idea of uh, of the brain presenting something that it has not presented before, uh, of uncovering some archaeology. You know, it's a, it's a project to where there's surprise involved. Uh, I. Do like the idea of, of multiplicity a lot, and mm-hmm. I think, for me, poetry—the poetry of first person—that was about 
this is good because it happened to me mm-hmm. doesn't seem so special to me anymore. And I'm not der- deriding that condition. I mean, I think Whitman I always loved, and I loved him. He was an I, but the I I became. But I also like the the third person and looking at those other more distanced uh, forms of identification, of human identification. Yeah, and that it's interesting, whereas fiction it does the same things a lot of the time. Poetry lends you a little bit more freedom uh, to explore in, in alternate ways and to dig in where you want to. And to can I have a platform as long as you can maintain it, um, which, is, which is difficult, which is very difficult. Um, how... What do you have any rituals when you when you write? Is there anything that you do that gets you into the space, or does it just kind of happen? It doesn't just happen, and sometimes um, it won't happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've come up with various rituals. They all involve reading. Uh, at at some point, I actually would begin by copying a great text, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I would start trying to write my own things, not in an imitation manner, but just in the imitation of having lived at that higher level of language and trying to stay on that. It was sort of like shooting crips before playing basketball, yeah. trying to get in the mode. And and then I didn't want to get into that just the laboring point of writing. I, I wanted to stay in a, in a freshness, so I would write so long and if it got hard, I would put an asterisk down and try to leap to another subject mm-hmm. or copy something else. And but, but I think staying alive in the language is difficult. Uh, some people, Margaret Atwood, seems to stay there all the time. She's so prolific and she's invariably interesting and good and focused. Uh, I admire so many kinds of writers, but I can't stay there all the time. Yeah, it's hard. Very hard thing. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not anyway. sure I can ever get there, really. Yeah. But, but you know, um, to kind of to wrap us up, uh, our time is short. Um, do you have any events coming up for the the, the release of this book? Um, the next event is uh, Sunday at the Maple Leaf Bar at three. Okay. I'll be giving a reading and hopefully selling some books. I probably came down here because my mentor and the first truly remarkable person I ever met was named Everett Maddox. Uh, we lived together in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. He was five years older than I was and a, a great hero. In graduate school, he'd published in The New Yorker and The Paris Review, and he would go around quoting entire poems. He was a complete alcoholic, but he became quite a character. He moved down here, mm-hmm. and he started that reading series. So... It's been taken up by Nancy Harris, who was a friend of Everett's and who still carries on. And so it means a lot to me to be reading in that series. That's great. And I look forward to it. Oh, good. And what was 3 p.m. on Sunday? Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. And uh, where can people uh, find the book? Octavia Books has a good supply, I believe. Oh, that, that's a good thing to know then. Well, uh, Rodney, before we head on out, I will ask you one more question. Okay. Um, yeah, I know you mentioned Margaret Atwood, but I was wondering, uh, are there any other books that you're reading right now that you would recommend? What am I reading right now? Um, 
I can't think of anything at the moment that I'm, oh, well, George Saunders. Ah, yes, yes. Uh, Lincoln, Lincoln and the Bardo. Yeah, which we had talked about before, uh, which I'm looking forward to reading myself after hearing you talk about it more. So. Um, I've read more fiction writers, you know. I've read uh, uh, David Foster Wallace, I still read. Mm-hmm. Brief Interviews with Hideous Men is, 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 is one of my books. Zadie Smith is knocks me down with, yeah. with her fiction. I don't care. I want I want gorgeous language that's attached to, you know, human beings in an intimate way and not just to make an impression, but I'm amazed at how many people are really good. Yeah. Um, I read things by my friends who are writers, Adrian Matika, who wrote The Big Smoke about... Uh, the boxer Jack Johnson, hmm. and he has a book out now called Mount the Stars. And I'm also reading uh, Stephen Dobbins, who's always good. I read Jory Graham, C.D. Wright, I Cannot Stop Reading. She's uh, was the generator of much of this book. Uh, we we had talked a little bit before, um, going going over a little bit, but I, I was interested. Um, you had known C.D. Wright uh, personally. Uh, I was wondering, uh, and she she sadly passed away last year. Um, I, I wanted your impressions on her work, her body of work that she's kind of left behind, and um, just some thoughts that you had on it. You know, because you seem to return to it often, and, and why you do so, and uh, why you think it's important. The book of hers that really seemed to me to announce her stepping to another level was called Deep Step Come Shining. And it's one of those books, it's a travel book, and it's sort of a buddy book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she was on a trip with her friend Deborah Lester, Luster, who lives in New Orleans and is a photographer, a great friend. It's the language in that book. Uh, it's very hard to describe what that book does. It, it, it just moves from thing to thing. It invents. Uh, it talks like people, the lowest sort and the highest sort. Mm-hmm. Um, her next book, uh, One Big Self, Prisoners of Louisiana, was another book that she undertook with Luster, which... Uh, uh, came out of interviews that she did with uh, prisoners in three prisons in, in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And I was enormously impressed in that book in that uh, she channeled what the prisoners said. And there's so many things in the book that are very much not her own, but the, the property of those prisoners who say them. And, and, and she doesn't privilege the dignified, high-level discourse over the low. They kind of exist together. Uh, she was always inventing ways to be on the page. And they had both an aesthetic and an ethical nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in love with her work. Just it's one of those people you read and, and you say, God, I wish I'd written that. Yeah. And how do you write that? <laughs> I get that. Oh, oh, Rodney, thank you for sharing that. And and thank you again for for coming on. I I really appreciated this conversation. Well, thank you. I appreciated your part in this wonderful conversation, too.
I was just speaking to professor and poet Rodney Jones, author most recently of Village Prodigies. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM. You can catch us every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., Saturdays at 8.30 a.m., and depending on Tulane Baseball, Sundays at 1 p.m. You can also find us online on our SoundCloud page where you can get all of our interviews at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.